McGuinn, and my favorite station is WMNF, Tampa, Florida. Here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. I say it's all right. Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5, where every Monday at 11, we bring you a conversation with local experts on sustainable issues. And today we have a couple of topics that we're going to be talking about. But first, we want to thank Mr. Bill Grace for keeping us in check. Definitely. We couldn't do it without (laughs) Bill. We'd be helpless. (laughs) And uh, my name is Kenny Coogan, and my wonderful co-host is Annie Ellis. Oh, and my wonderful co-host is Kenny. (laughs) We're both wonderful. So today we're going to be balancing people, profit, and planet, because that's what sustainability is about. And we're going to be talking about GFI, which stands for Guidance for Industry, number 263, which is about pets and animals that go into the uh, food stream. But we're also going to be interviewing later in the show the CEO of the Central Florida Zoo, Richard Glover, about what they're doing for their sustainability practices. Yeah. But uh, this GFI is very interesting, and it affects people who have pet chickens, who are breeding chickens for food, who have a pet emu, a pet llama, cats and dogs. Cats and dogs. I was surprised. It, it was all companion animals, they even said, not just large farm animals. Because exactly. I thought it was originally it was just large farm animals, but it is not. So it affects us all. We all just about have a pet. Exactly. So GFI, which stands for Guidance for Industry, like I said, in number 263, is part of a broader effort by the Food and Drug Administration to combat antimicrobial resistance, which we shorten to AMR. It's a serious threat to animal and public health, and this means that over-the-counter sales of specifically medically important livestock antibiotics in the U.S. will end June 11, 2023. I want to interject, though, because I looked it up and I was surprised it's been going on for five years. It was as people knew that this was coming. They've been been warning us. Yes, it's just not drop the ball at this moment. But but, uh, you can only hear about this on WNF because... That's true. Because... They don't talk about it on regular radio. Yeah, I don't know where else you would find this information. So that's why we want to bring it to you because, like uh, Annie was saying, it's for pets and for animals going into uh, human consumption. So it makes sense too, you know, because that people uh, re- abuse antibiotics all the time. It's a, it's a terrible thing because then when we really need it, it doesn't work. So you uh, only have a couple more months to get over the counter uh, antibiotics, but we're going to talk about that in just a minute. So GFI number 263 is not limited to animals that will enter the food chain, but applicable to all livestock and companion animals. GFI number 263 was written and created by the Food and Drug Administration to combat AMR because this is affecting humans. Yes. Concern about antibiotic antimicrobial resistance has been growing and has resulted in changed practices, not only for the livestock sector, but also horticulture and the practice of human medicine. Which surprised me on the horticulture. Are you going to talk about that too? You can mention it. Well, I don't know about it. You know, as far as like, are there antibiotics that are used in horticulture? That's an interesting topic, I think. 
Yeah, so I'm focusing on the animal right, aspect right. because I interviewed a couple of uh, veterinarians. Oh, okay. But yeah, this people are using it on uh, foodstuffs. Well, my ex-husband is a doctor, and he told me right off the bat, he said, I'm not going to give, when he started to go into private practice, he said, I'm not going to give people antibiotics unless they need it. And then, of course, he succumbed to the pressures uh, and went ahead and started giving antibiotics because they said, oh, we're going to go to somebody else. So to me, that's like follow the money. You know, like uh, they're going to change vets, they're going to change doctors, they're going to change whatever just so they can get that product. So, you know, that's going to be tricky, I think, because I think a lot of these vets, because it, I read about it, you have to get a relationship with the vet and they can just call yeah. if they know your, your stock and then they can just verbally go ahead and do it. They don't have to come out to your place. But I think that that's going to be tricky because people are going to do some things that are maybe not correct. Yeah, so owners have remarked that it's already difficult or impossible to source antibiotics used to treat their livestock. So. Yeah. Um, on our Facebook page and on the general WMNF community radio Facebook page, we put out a little call to action saying that, hey, we're going to be talking about uh, GFI number 263. I'm only giggling because Mr. Bill Grace is standing on the desk. Oh, my God. A party. He's on a movable <laughs> chair that's not a... All right. Well, oh let's go back God. to the topic. So, yes. Annie. <laughs> Don't fall. Annie, can you read a couple of yes. the comments that we received? I'm going to be the owners of the, uh, the, the people. I'm going to play the the other person and Kenny's going to answer the questions. So Twin Raven Naturals says not everyone has access to a large animal vet, so this will be uh, will just lead to more unnecessary suffering of animals in many instances. You can read the other two. Okay. You... Oh, okay. All at once. Uh, and then Tall Pines Farm says totally ridiculous. I don't need a vet to tell me I can buy penicillin or. Uh, ivermectin. I know what to do. And then Desert Oaks Plantscapes even, here you go, uh, says, great news. The overuse and improper use of antibiotics is driving scary antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Now they need to stop allowing unfettered use of CAFOs, which stands for Concentrated Animal Feeding Operation. And that's basically how most uh, pigs and cows are raised for human consumption in those CAFOs. And because there's so many animals in such a small space, if one is sick, it spreads throughout the flock or the herd very yeah. quickly. So that's why farmers are using those antibiotics pretty uh, often. So are they putting that in their food? Uh, so they're consistently getting it all the time? As a preventive measure, which it isn't? So the concentrated animal feeding operations is talking about like the cows and the pigs. That's like the feeding operation. But yeah, they can apply it to their food or their water. Like ivermectin is a pretty popular uh, over-the-counter drug. So um, I do want to remind listeners that if they want to be part of the conversation about GFI number 263, they can give us a call at 813-239-9663, or they can send us an email at dj at wmnf.org, and we will read it on there. And we're going to be talking about it for about the next 15 minutes before our uh, zoo guest comes on. So, like Annie was mentioning, people are some people say this is great because they realize that this antimicrobial resistance is affecting people in hospitals, and then other people are are concerned that they're not going to be able to get the medicine because there isn't enough uh, large vets. So the difficulty of getting medications may be the result of the 
drug manufacturers following the FDA's guidelines or supply issues. Many of these medications have been on back order with issues beginning during the onset of COVID-19. So when livestock owners can't get one antibiotic because of backorder issues, which are very specific to the disease, right. they may opt for a suboptimal medication that may not treat those specific bacteria. So they might be giving their, you know, pet llama or, yeah. or their chickens in the backyard a, a antibiotic that doesn't actually hit that particular issue. Exactly. Yeah, I, and that's 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 what people do with people. I mean, you know, they'll say, oh, I have some leftover antibiotics that my yes. doctor prescribed me, blah, 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 for this. And then they think it's all the same, but it certainly is not. It's specifically for a thing. So you, I'll read this next thing. Yeah, we got um, two more uh, messages. Okay. And Joy Marie 73 says, in our area, it's next to impossible to get a vet to visit farms. How can we get a prescription without vets who are willing to do farm calls? I know dust pneumonia in a pig. Who is going to come to diagnose and prescribe? There are no vets. And then... Uh, in Colorado Burial Preserve, wow, says, yeah, the timing of this is awful because of the shortage of vets, because uh, especially large uh, animal and rural vets, in the short term, it's going to cause animal deaths and raise prices. So I, I interviewed uh, three vets for um, a podcast for Mother Earth News, and I was talking to them about this, and they said that the reason why there aren't large vets in a specific area isn't because there isn't a enough vets, it's because that area isn't hiring enough. They're, they're not putting the call out saying, hey, we need a we vet need a in vet this here. area. Oh, if, okay. if a vet knows that, you know, not just this county, but three counties over needs a vet, then that vet will hire more vets sure. and their business will expand. Yes, because they need to make a living. They can't just go there for two people. But I think one of the problems is that some people think that a backyard chicken, which only cost a few dollars, is like a throwaway, oh, not an not even an investment, but like a throwaway pet, right? Because oh, it's so it's, it's so cheap. People are like, well, I don't want to pay a vet to come out and check my chicken. Exactly. So, uh, and another vet was telling me that you know they, you can be a exotic vet, you can be a dog and cat vet, or you could be a livestock vet, and they focused on uh, maybe like cows and horses in vet school. But then when they started working, they realized that so many people had pet. Uh, pot belly pigs. Oh yeah, that they kind that of was be- a thing. they kind of became like the pot belly pig expert because right. so many people were breeding them and having them as pets. Right, and you know their degree and their certificate is good for literally all animals, not human. So they are allowed to treat a pig. You know, what I found to be kind of interesting, Kenny, was that when I was reading up on it and and it said that, you know, when the the person that has the animal, like the rancher, let's just say rancher has the animals and they need to establish a relationship with the vet. So then if that vet knows their uh, animals and their property and the, the practices they're doing, they just have to call them and they don't actually have to make a trip there, which scares me a little bit because that seems like things could get really get into, yeah, sure, whatever you say, Bob, mm-hmm. here, here's your prescription, you know? Yeah, one of those uh, comments that you read earlier was saying, like, I don't need a vet telling me what to do. And Exactly. And I do understand if you're, 
you know, grandfather and your father was a farmer, you, you've been around it and you, you've, you've experienced it. But we also do need to rely on, or not rely on the vets, but refer to the vets because they're getting updated information and they're seeing so many cases and they're seeing, oh, you know, in this part of town or this region, there's more this type of bacteria going Well, on. and a lot of times people just, you know, they learn, ba- I people learn bad information from their, you know, friends, family, and, uh, you know, so on like that. So just because they learn something from two generations doesn't mean it's uh, applicable at this particular time, for sure. I know that happens a lot of times in the plant world. People are always saying uh, on the websites, uh, oh, use this. And I'm like, oh, my God, not again, please. Oh, wife's tale. Yeah. So we got an email from David and he says, hi, Kenny and Annie. Those concentrated feeding operations usually have huge waste lagoons. Mm. I saw that someone fell in one of those and died a while back, which has to be one of the worst ways to die. The smell from those lagoons is awful too. So do you know what that is? Yeah. So next to the farm where all the animals are kind of crammed in together, they create those little... Oh, you uh, mean like the pig farmers where they just have those blood and yuckiness of uh, ponds right next to them? Is that what that is? Kind of. This is like the, yeah, the animal excrement oh, and... So horrible. All the water and, you know... Because they're lot- in cement and they just wash it into that. Okay. Yes. Yeah, that's so, so sad. And because, like I mentioned earlier, they're living so closely together. Yeah. That's why... That's- those are not animals that are living out uh, free-ranging and stuff like that. That's a completely different scenario, yeah. isn't it? But Still working that's with how, it. Yeah. That's they, how, I'm sure they get a lot of antibiotics in those situations. Exactly. They're trying to be preventative rather yeah, than exactly. treat for the actual thing. Which is, which is the worst because it, if they don't have it, they don't need it. Then when they do need it, it's not going to work. Yes. So according to Ann Norris, an FDA health communication specialist, the FDA intends to allow unlabeled inventory remaining in distribution channels to be depleted rather than recalled. So that's good. So up until June 11th, if there's still stuff on, um, if you go to like a feed store or, yeah, basically a feed store, and you see antibiotics, you'll still be able to get them. But once that is depleted, then you're going to have to refer to the vet. I've had a lot of people are going to go out and buy a lot and hoard it. Yes. So I talked mm-hmm. to the vets about that and they said, please don't do that because <laughs> if if your neighbor has an animal who's actually sick and needs the antibiotic because of COVID-19, there's been a backlog. Right. There's not enough medicine to go around. So do, it's unethical to be hoarding and it's also unethical to share antibiotics with your friend. Oh, so if, so if you did hoard it, you can't really give it to your buddy. Exactly. Oh, okay. Now, many of these medications are already on back order, so they haven't been manufactured with the -the over-the-counter labeling. So although we might be hoping that there's some antibiotics on the counter, they're probably not going to be available. Now, to access medically important antibiotics going forward, animal owners, now remember, cats, dogs, chickens. Yeah, all animals. Will be required to establish a veterinarian client-patient relationship, which is known as VCPR. Now, the definition of VCPR varies from state to state and can be obtained by contacting the state's veterinarian medical board. Some states require, at minimum, an annual on-site visit. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe six months ago, a year ago, I had a chicken that was coughing, and I talked to the state veterinarian for poultry. It was so easy. I emailed him, and he emailed me back within like 45 minutes, and he asked me... 
how the other birds were doing mm-hmm. and et cetera, et cetera. And because the other birds weren't sick, they weren't coughing, they didn't have nasal discharge, he said that he didn't need to send anybody out. Like it wasn't bird he flu. He trusted your judgment. Yeah. And, and also I was talking to the other vets and they said, these days you can just send a video. You know, oh, that's you, a good you, idea. You just, yeah, sure. If a if there's a lame animal, if there's a sneezing animal, you right. can just send a video. But um, it's pretty. These animals, if they're your pets, you should invest in a vet. Yeah, absolutely. Because just, yeah, chickens can live ten to fifteen years, mm-hmm. and it's not just an Easter present. No, and they're they're hopefully going to supply you with eggs, and especially if you're going to be eating your eggs, the their eggs, you want to make sure your chicken is healthy. Well, and that you know, it makes me think about well, if you're if you don't know the person, like I used to get eggs from my friends that have you know chickens, but if you don't know, uh, you're you could be ingesting the antibiotics that they're laying the eggs that they had it in their system, correct? And you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> well, but that would you, but, because you're supposed to take them off the train uh, when yeah, that happens. Depending on the antibiotic, you're supposed to wait like ten days to twenty yeah. days. So af- yeah, after I you a- after you give the medicine, yeah. so you you know you have to give the medicine seven to ten days, and then you have to wait. Well, you know it's funny because you know I I gotta take my cat to the vet, and I spent a lot of money on her. Uh, I mean, she's an expensive cat these days, it seems. But yeah, you know I I guess people become less de- less attached when it's a large amount of animals that they have probably especially if they're you know growing them to kill maybe all right so know. Annie, you want to read maria's comment yes i sure will uh maria says this has been in effect in california for a few years of course i needed some antibiotics for my birds and was told that i had to seek an avian veterinarian which did not exist in my area i resorted to home remedies like apple cider vinegar activated charcoal and vitamin c and that um home remedy makes me scared yeah it does me too i'm like vinegar and activated charcoal and vitamin c i mean what do you know about that especially the amounts that you'd be giving them right well, yeah, but I, I just yourself. don't know how effective those things are. But if right. you establish a vet um, relationship now. Right. Well, that's the thing. Six you don't months, wait. 12 months from now, if they're sick, then you're good to go. Exactly. And that's the whole thing about it. It's like you need to do that now to get that uh, ready. You know, so like, because I know I took, like I said, I took my cat to the vet. She was uh, really, really sick. So I took her to the emergency room. And so then uh, they wanted to charge me a ton of money. I said, well, I'll just go to my regular vet the next day, and which I did. And she knows the cat since a kitten. So she knew to be able to manage all these things. And it was a lot less expensive, which is I felt more comfortable with her anyway. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you have somebody you can talk to and they know the animal, then it shouldn't be like you said. You could send a video or whatever. So it's pre-planning. Yeah, and then the, the last thing we'll end with is prevention is always the best medicine. Absolutely. So one um, thing that uh, livestock chicken owners think about is biosecurity measures, especially now with uh, the bird flu going on. Um, a lot of people are thinking about. So one thing for bird flu is you should not be feeding your chickens or your poultry like turkeys and ducks and geese. You shouldn't have their feed outside where wild birds can be also eating that food because then the wild birds nasal discharge can go into the feed right. then your chickens are going to eat it and then they'll get the avian flu. I have a friend that's on the river and she put out bowls out on on the other side of the fence to feed them to keep them from coming over. 
So that's what she's doing to re, to, to you know keep them away. Yeah, to separate it exactly. And I don't have the exact numbers, but I think it's like sixty million uh, chickens have been culled in the U.S. so far because of uh, bird flu. Yeah, I mean, I personally know somebody, and it's a horrible situation. I went to their house yesterday, and it was just quiet out there. So Very weird. The question is, does biosecurity measures prevent a lot of these issues? The answer is kind of. The, mm-hmm. It prevents viral issues, which cannot be treated with antibiotics, but may indicate antibiotics for secondary infections. And most of the bacteria that causes livestock illness are soil-borne. So if you're a farmer and if you're a farmer, you already know this, but if you're a farmer and you're visiting another farmer, you need to have those foot bath stations or you need to oh. completely change your outfit. Wow. You know, visiting the cow and then when you come back. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, because you don't want to bring that, that infected soil or whatever feces mm-hmm. uh, with you. Wow. That's exactly. interesting. Exactly. All right, Bill. Is our guest on? Indeed he is. All right. Very Yay. good. So about a year ago, according to the website, and I hope that's right, Mr. Uh, <laughs> we'll Richard Glover. <laughs> uh, Richard Glover took the helm as the Central Florida Zoo as CEO, ready to energetically tell the story of conservation and help grow the zoo. Now, the zoo is already the largest attraction in Seminole County, but Glover seems tremendous growth opportunities for the zoo near the shores of Lake Monroe. And today we will be speaking to him about the zoo's sustainability efforts. Welcome to the program, Richard. Hi, Richard. Hello, how are y'all? Good, thank you. We are doing great and we're excited to have you. And um, can you confirm that you just joined the zoo about uh, last April? That is correct. I had joined the zoo uh, last April 6th. Were you at another zoo before? Um, right before that, I was at Space Center Houston. But previous to that, I'd been at a few aquariums. Um, I oh, okay. I'd stepped away from zoos and aquariums for a little while for some family uh, health issues. But um, it's it's my passion. It's where my heart is. So I had to get back to it. Oh, good. Glad that you found that and they found you. And I was reading that, uh, you know, during the pandemic, zoos and aquariums and all cultural institutions of Florida and everywhere were kind of debating or trying to figure out how to make it through the pandemic. Sure. So, um, Richard, you kind of got the tail end of that. (laughs) I I did, although I will say, you know, zoos probably had it easier than a lot of other kinds of cultural attractions and that with most of our um, activities being outside, people felt comfortable coming back sooner Mm -hmm. um, in larger numbers than they did in the indoors kinds of cultural attractions. So that was certainly helpful for us. I have a friend who's the director of Zoo Montana, and during the pandemic, they had, you know, usually you're walking on the zoo streets, but they Mm -hmm. started having their patrons drive through the zoo. Oh, wow. So they could stay in the car. Oh, so they actually used their cars to do that. Wow. So it's a bigger area of open air at Montana, of course, yeah. Montana. Come on. <laughs> it's, it's the, There's no speed limit in Montana either. <laughs> it's the only zoo in the entire state of Montana. That you could drive through, yeah. <laughs> that in Africa, you have to go there. <laughs> so, Richard, we want to know about your zoo's sustainability efforts and conservation efforts. So how does uh, sustainability impact your decisions the zoo makes about products and vendors? 
So that's that's become something over the years has become increasingly important to, to our zoo and, and most other zoos and aquariums. Um, you know, what we do now is we really look at all the products we use. You can imagine um, something this size. We're, we're 26 acres that's developed and you can imagine there's a lot of cleaning products that we go through. There's a lot of materials we go through. So we really take a hard look at when we partner with vendors, for example, our food and beverage vendor, we really look for a partner that is already working on becoming as sustainable as possible because that's for us, that's part of our goal. And we wanna make sure that anyone that we're working with is doing that too, if they're on our campus. So whether it's with the vendors that we're working with or whether it's when we're choosing individual products that we're gonna use here at the zoo, we're always looking at the impact and trying to make the best decision, which sometimes is not the most economical decision, but from a mission standpoint, we feel like that's the right thing to do. So we try to make that choice whenever it's something we can afford to do. So uh, this is Annie, uh, and I was just wondering myself, uh, what are the some things the zoo is currently doing to decrease the environmental footprint? Like, are you reducing plastics, uh, uh, single-use products, that sort of stuff? We are. So, so when it comes to our food and beverage operations, we actually have eliminated all plastic. Oh, good. So, so even if you're using what appear to be plastic utensils, they're actually made out of vegetables. Right. Um, so we, we've done that. All of our trash bags are biodegradable. Um, all of our soaps and hand sanitizer are biodegradable and dye-free um, and green seal certified. We don't have any plastic bags in our gift shop. Um, we don't have, we've got electric charging stations. We've got LED lighting. Uh, we do have some solar panels. That's something we'd like to get more of. Um, our toilet paper is tubeless. So lots of little things. And then all the, all the chemicals that we use are eco-friendly and we have a pretty comprehensive recycling program here. Yeah, that's what I was wondering on your recycling. So if these are all biodegradable products, are you doing something in a composting procedure to make that work? We, we have started working on some of that. We're not as far along on, on the, the composting as we'd like to be. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had some starts and stops with things, obviously, with some of the hurricanes. <laughs> oh, right. Right. I forgot. About, well, didn't forget about it, but you know. <laughs> well, speaking of that, we just got an email from David, and he says, I remember one of the hurricanes last year shut the shut down the zoo for several months. How long was it shut down? It must have been tough to deal with flooding and have no ticket oh, yeah. revenue for a while. For those who haven't visited the Central Florida Zoo, it is located on a huge lake, plus dealing with COVID double whammy. Yeah. So how did that work for you, Richard? That is true. So when when Hurricane Ian hit, uh, we ended up being closed for flooding on the front part of our property because there's only one road in and out, Mm -hmm. and it's at the front of the property. It was flooded and had over two feet of water for weeks. So we were closed for 28 days, uh, which was the longest any zoo in Florida was closed for me, and shockingly. Um, but it was it was a tough time. Uh, we had we still were able to get our animal staff in and a skeleton staff in every day to take care of the animals and make sure all that was okay. But yeah, we had no no income during that time, and we had about four hundred thousand dollars worth of damage uh. between Ian and the flooding. So you you take that, you take the cost of you know just paying staff and electricity and all the food for animals and medicine for animals, and it. It adds up fast. We we took a hit of somewhere between eight hundred thousand and a million dollars um, that twenty eight days. My goodness! I want to go back to when you were saying about how you're you're choosing these eco friendly products, which mm-hmm. is great. And you said sometimes they're not always the most uh, 
less expensive. Yeah, yeah, they're a little more expensive. But as you, because you're such a large institution, if you I know you are doing it, but if you're doing it, and then your neighbor who's you know unrelated, like a museum or the county, starts also doing that, then those prices are gonna go down. Yeah, and, and that's how you get a movement exactly. going. That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know if it's yeah, a question, I, but <laughs> I, I mean that's absolutely the hope is that more people will start doing the same thing, and you know it, it's also something where you know we have access to a lot of guests, and we're able to talk about those kinds of things with a lot of guests, and the hope is that people walk away from here and take one or two of those things home with them, and maybe make a few little changes at home. Well, that's an interesting point, though, that Kenny brought up are these other. Um, so you've done all the legwork, and so then they would be able able to just step in line on that if they knew about it. Yeah, and that definitely happens. Um, one of the things from the zoo and aquarium industry, the Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which is uh, the organization that accredits us, um, we all work together and we have lots of listservs and, and groups that meet on a regular basis that share these kinds of things so that so that when you're looking for a vendor, you, you can find one, someone else can give you a recommendation. Um, particularly one of the things kind of nationally everyone's looking at is gloves. Uh, we use a lot of gloves in our oh, industry yeah. and gloves. trying to find an affordable, um, you know, more sustainable option for gloves is one of the priorities right now that everyone's struggling with. Is that a so, doable thing? Uh, right now, we're not sure. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're all kind of looking at, at things, but the, the cost is a lot and the number of gloves we go through a lot. And that is that is the one area I think most zoos are, are struggling trying to find an alternative that makes sense. Um, but hopefully we'll all kind of settle on something that will work well for us. Um, I, I think that the zoo and aquarium industry is probably ahead of some of the other kinds of museums in these kind of practices because we've been looking at from from the sustainability environmental impact part for longer because of the kinds of institutions we are and the work right. we do. Um, but the science centers, a lot of the children's museums, things like that are starting to catch up and and certainly are very focused on you know, they they also want to be good citizens within their environment and within their communities. And so I, I, you do see a lot of conversation between different organizations about these kind of things and a lot of sharing of resources. Um, and we all seem to see, hit the same roadblocks, you know, the gloves being one of those. But it, there, there are just certain things that it's easier to find a sustainable replacement for that you can afford. And others that sometimes a lot of these organizations were nonprofits. And so there is that limit to which it, sometimes you have to make choices and say, well, this isn't the choice we'd really like to make, but we can't afford to make the other one yet. Interesting, though, that if the more people needed that product, it would probably become less expensive. So, yeah. you know, if more people got on board with that, I would think that the people that are generating that product would, uh, you know, be able to do it in a better way for more affordable practices. It seems to me too that like if, you know, if you're interested in that and the people knew that that's something that's an issue that they may be getting on board on yeah. donations. That's true. I was also thinking that zoos are usually like the, a family yeah. oriented thing. So you got the family, you got the kids. Right. Right. And then Annie, do you know what a dink is? No. It's a dual income, no kids 
Oh, so <laughs> that's you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when like cultural institutions are advertising, they're like, hey, we're a family friendly thing. But then they're like, well, maybe we need the dinks. A, <laughs> but we also need the dinks to come. So like we'll have an adult uh, Valentine's. Oh, like we event. just had somebody the other night uh, in the other zoo, as a matter of fact, and they have like a jazz wine uh, edible situation that they have a big party every year and they make a lot of money and all of it is done with sustainable practices. So what I'm thinking is that the families who are coming and all the dinks that are coming and all the single people who are coming, because they're coming to the zoo, there's so much educational uh, signage. Yeah. And, you know, this animal is endangered and we need to do X, Y, and Z to help save them. These people who are supporting the zoo probably want to learn that you don't have that cardboard in the toilet paper. Right. Or, or, that actually is a signage that says that. These are the things we're doing. Richard, That's a very Richard, good point. Richard, we are giving you free advice. Yeah, I'm loving this, <laughs> this brain trust here. <laughs> you guys are right on track. So that's something we're actually working on right now because we are trying to put more signage around our campus that it calls attention to each one of those sustainability efforts we have. Yeah just so people will think about it. I mean, that you know, you don't want to beat people over the head no. with, with, you know, and try to preach at them. You just want to give them the information and say, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. And that may spark someone to go, you know what, I'd like to do that too. Yeah. And so we're, we're trying to take more of that tact. And, and you're right. I mean, for, you know, if you look at things now, families are, you know, always going to be a big part of the zoo. But we do need those other people that are, you know, if you look at demographics, more and more people are getting married later. Um, they're living without kids later, more, less are having kids, less are having as many kids. So the demographics are shifting and those, those different kinds of families and groups are very important to us. And, and we also want people to remember zoos aren't just places for kids. A lot of people think you outgrow the zoo when you can't go to camp anymore or you're not interested in going to camp anymore. And that's there's there's lots of activities at a zoo for adults. I love adults. a zoo. And I'm a I very really old person. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you mentioned you mentioned that festival. We we actually have our brews around the zoo on April eighth, which is a similar thing. It's it's thirty stations, craft beers, seltzers, oh, wine. Very good. You know, just a big party. And that's, you know, that's 21 and up only. And that's a, a good time to be able to introduce that uh, uh, less uh, interference with the debris that you would be creating. That's a very good time I, to start getting the correct, uh, you know, cups, uh, all the things that you're going to need to implement that it wouldn't be a single use or it would be a compostable uh, additive. Right. Well, I hope you do it. <laughs> so I want to remind listeners that you are listening to the Sustainable Living Show on WMNF Tampa 88.5. Today's guest is Richard Glover, CEO of Central Florida Zoo. If you want to be part of the conversation to talk about cultural institutions, sustainability, and conservation, please give us a call at 813-239-9663 or send us an email at dj at and we will read it on air. Now we have friend of the show, Bubba. He sent us an email. Love Bubba. It's a little off topic, but because he's so funny, I have to read it. <laughs> he says, Lion Country Safari still operates a drive through zoo in Palm Beach County. Trump says, those critters are tremendous. Believe me, they would vote for Trump if they could. <laughs> he's so silly. Thank you, Bubba. I, is there really a drive through thing? And, yes. Uh, oh, that's cool. Yes, I didn't is. know that. 
All right, so Richard, back to you. <laughs> back to reality. Yeah. <laughs> How does uh, animal conservation work impact environmental sustainability? Well, it's, it's interesting. I think what people don't realize when, when they hear about animal conservation, they don't really realize how it impacts humans and, and how losing these species can impact humans. But um, some of these species that are disappearing are, are what you'd call an umbrella species that take care of other species. And if they start disappearing, then let's say your apex predator in a certain area starts disappearing. Well, that means that other things that normally would be eaten don't get eaten. That means those are able to eat other things lower down on the food chain. It actually affects our food supply as humans um, when some of these animals disappear or the health of the kinds of animals that, that we see around these places. It affects the plants and what is able to thrive and isn't. Um, so it, there is an impact to, to us as humans, uh, it's each of these species disappear. So that's the reason we do the work we do out in the environment trying to, to conserve these species. It's not just that we don't want the animals to go away, which obviously we don't, um, but it also impacts us in much more dramatic ways than people realize. There's the canary in the coal mine for sure. I mean, it's, you know, if when it shows us when something is happening, there's something wrong. Uh, you know, it's not just a lot of hunters out there killing. I mean, you know, there's a lot going on. Right. And when that circle is broken like that, that's just, you know, so obvious mm-hmm. of that we need to repair. And good for you for uh, promoting that particular part of it. I, I taught middle school biology and agriculture for seven years. And one of the lucky like, years, it was, it was like a four week <laughs> or six week unit. And it was called interdependence. And I oh. I didn't even really know I didn't really know. You what. kind of made it up. Well, no, no. They, the state told me I had to teach it. Okay. But I didn't really know that phrase or the, like really the meaning. And of, cor- of course, it's about ecology and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to a, a podcast with Edward Norton, yes. the a- actor and activist. Mm-hmm. And he was mentioning how like today people are realizing that you can't just build a fence around a rainforest right. and say... You can't poach there. You can't take the right. lumber. Save this spot. Exactly. It doesn't work like that anymore. Yeah. You have to be interconnected, like right. Richard was just saying. Yeah. And, it, you know, I don't think a lot of people think about that. That's why I think it's so wonderful that that is something that you're bringing to the forefront. Because I just don't, most people just don't think about the big picture. You know, they really don't. And uh, and it's important. I think when they do finally, the light bulb goes off, then that is bringing in another activist, you know, that is going to fire them up to do something positive and then spread more word out there for other people. So good for you. Well, and I'm, I'm hopeful from, from what we see, you know, around Florida with the wildlife corridors and the fact that we're building some freeways so that the animals can go underneath them instead of it just cutting right across the land that they would normally have. I, I think we're beginning to learn better how to live with these other species. Don't you think a lot of those are being made, though, so they can uh, increase the the uh, development in certain areas? That's kind of what I think. I mean, I love that the idea of it's beautiful, but I think some of those places are going into, uh, they're creating those uh, freeways in areas that don't really need a freeway, and they're so they're tacking that on to it uh, to make it look attractive. Well, I think Richard is talking about the... The corridor. Oh, I know. Yeah. That's what they're... And and then the freeways have like those under... 
underground tunnels. Yeah, and they're they're really. But you're promoting. just saying there's like extra freeways now. Yeah, they're creating more freeways and they're tacking that on. It's like greenwashing. You know, it makes it look good and it appeals to your heartstrings because you think that it's a good thing they're doing, but they're putting the freeway in an area that doesn't really need one, you know. Well, we have a thousand people moving to Florida a day. Yeah, this, it's a whole thing. <laughs> it's a real political deal, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to go on about it. <laughs> so, so Richard, we were talking about Florida. Can you give us an example of conservation work that the zoo is doing that positively impacts the environment? And it would be great to know if, you're balancing Florida animals or if you're working on animals from all over the world? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, you know, we we do have, we participate in what are called species survival plans with with the Association of Zoos and Aquariums with a, a number of species that are both native here and other places. But, but our biggest conservation project um, is on the Eastern Indigo snake, which is a snake that is native to Florida, Georgia, and Alabama. Um, and it's a really fascinating species because they are the longest snake in North America. Oh, that, that's the and, only fact I know about them. And <laughs> they, the longest. <laughs> part of their diet is eating other venomous snakes. <gasps> oh, wow. So, so the importance of having them out in the environment that they normally are in is they will help keep the populations of those other kinds of typically invasive snakes that may not have started out here in Florida and may not should be in those environments, they'll keep those populations in check. And as they disappear, those populations start to expand. So what we've been doing for the last several years is we actually, we are the lead institution for AZA in the country for Eastern Indigo snakes. And we have a the only captive breeding facility for that. It's actually in um, Lake County in Eustis. And we breed these snakes and we re-release them out into the environment. We release about 50 a year right now. We're, we're trying to upscale that more, but we're trying to bring that population back both in Northern Florida and also in Alabama and Georgia um, in order to have stable populations of those um, in, in the areas that they belong. And that just benefits all of us because otherwise we're gonna be overrun by these invasive species that do all kinds of other damage to the ecosystem. So um, that is that is our primary um, conservation project. That is the one that we put our most time and effort and money into, but it very much has the impact here in Florida and right around here. Why do you think that they became a, a species that was endangered? It's, it's a combination of factors. It's, it's part that their habitat's been destroyed. Okay. It's part that, you know, they're snakes. And once we put roads through all these areas, mm-hmm. a lot of them die getting hit by cars. Um, and the other thing is, as you develop, one of the places that a lot of snakes, and there's about 30 species of snakes, including the eastern indigo, that use gopher tortoise burrows as a place for them to safely live. Mm-hmm. Um, and those have been disappearing too, and the gopher tortoises have been disappearing. And so without those, there's not been places where they could stay protected. And so then they have other you know, predators that may get them. So it, there's a number of factors that have led into it, um, but we know how important they are to the environment. So it's really 
one of those things where the more of them we can get back out there, the more that we can reinvigorate those populations in the areas where they've been disappearing, the healthier those areas will be. So that's unscrupulous uh, developers. If you're saying that the gopher tortoises uh, are uh, disappearing and their their home environments disappearing. Uh, so that's from that, because I know that that's, that's a protected situation. You're not supposed to be able to build on an area that has that or it has to be removed properly. It, it, it is protected now, but, but during the time that it wasn't, there was a huge amount of oh, okay. damage done to that species. So it's it's slowly improving. It's slowly coming back. But but it, it really, you know, the the reason that they ended up finally getting protection was it just decimated that population. Okay, so it was in such a de- bad decline, they had to do something radical. Exactly. Okay, good. It's all connected. The snakes Absolutely. and the tortoises need each other. We need those snakes. Absolutely. I, you know, I was thinking, too, like people are scared of snakes. A lot of people are scared of snakes, and they just react. It's just like you know, those toads. You know, people just kill all the toads because they're afraid of the bufo, you know, is going to kill their dog, but they just overreact. Everybody just overreacts overreacts, uh, you know, instead of just realizing it's part of the environment. Richard, when you release the 50 snakes a year, are they uh, hatchlings or do you feed them a little? Are they no, teenagers? It's, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty complicated situation. We have partners. So for the first year of their life, they stay with us and then they move on to one of our other partners and they're there for a, their second year. And so the ones that are released are two years old. Okay. That way they're mature enough that they have best chance to survive. And then we also tag them and monitor them after they are released so that we're able to see you know, get an idea of how many are surviving, how many, you know, are there others that they're breeding with? Are we seeing them year after year? Um, and we've had good success. I mean, we, the, the success rate has been very strong of them surviving for the first few years and being able to reproduce. And, and that's what we want to see. You, you know that with any animal out out in their native habitat, there's going to be other predators and they're not all going to survive. Um, but you want to see a, a good enough survival rate that it matches what it would be normally. All right. Thank you, Richard. We're going to take a two-minute break because we have Lisa on the on the phone. And Lisa is going to be talking about some sustainable events that are happening around the area. Yes. Hey, Hello. Lisa. Hey there. How are you guys? Great, great discussion today. And I just wanted to mention really quickly uh, that... I am so grateful for the for the work that uh, Richard and his team are doing with the uh, the indigo because uh, I actually on my land had the last breeding female and it was killed by a neighbor. Oh, it, see, they overreacted. And you're in Pinellas County, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we were in, right by the water and South Pinellas by the Good county. Good Lord. Right? Yeah, it was it was so tragic. Killed all <sighs> on this property. Anyway, I had to mention that because. Yeah, to your heart, right? Well, we only have a couple minutes, so let's uh, roll ahead. Okay, so speaking of animals, uh, here in Pinellas County, Pinellas Pioneer Settlement, uh, we're having a big event this Saturday. It's called Farm Day at uh, at the settlement, and the address is, let me get that address really quick, it is 2931st Street South in St. Petersburg, and it's going to be uh, in partnership with Boyd Hill Nature Preserve. And there's going to be activities for all ages, uh, hay rides, crafts, uh, pancakes, butter making, mm-hmm. and a petting zoo and a plant sale. So uh, go ahead and put that on, on your calendar. And then on uh, going over to Hillsborough County, there is a seed and plant swap. It's uh, going to be the following weekend, Saturday, April 1st, from 11 to 1. 
And uh, the, the uh, information says to uh, bring your seeds and plants to share that Seminole Heights Community Gardens. Uh, the address is 6114 River Terrace, Tampa, Florida. And that is, again, that's on the 1st of April. And then uh, there's also the second annual Florida Native Plant Symposium, which is uh, going to be, the address is at Florida Botanical Gardens. It's in Largo, Florida, uh, 12211 Walsingham Road. And there's going to be keynote speakers. There's going to be uh, all sorts of great things going on. So uh, go ahead and put that on your calendar. I know we're short in time, so I was going to rush to the next one. It's a Tampa Green Fest. Uh, there's going to be, that's going to be going on in Hillsborough County. That is uh, the... Uh, it's at the Tampa Garden, Garden Club, right it's off Bayshore. Yeah, I see that. 2690, uh, sorry, 2629 Bayshore Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And that's this Saturday from Saturday and Sunday from 10 to 4. And I think we have time for one more. It's the uh, American Herbalist Guild monthly meeting. It's an herb walk and herb book swap. And that's going to be at Tradition School of Herbal Studies. And that's going to be this Sunday, uh, 5.30. And I don't have an address on here, but it is at the um, Traditions School of Herbal Studies. It's on Central Avenue, uh, and you can look that up. Very good. Oh, that's that Bob that? Lindy. Yes. And, yes. And we'll share it on our Sustainable Living WMNF Facebook page. Yes. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Lisa. I appreciate it. You did a great job today. Okay, great. Have a great day. Thank, Thank you. you. So, Richard, we have a few minutes left. Can you talk... Can you kind of summarize our, t- our conversation today? Why are zoos and aquariums good venues to carry sustainability messages to the public? So I think there's a, a few things. And one of the things I find most fascinating that a lot of people don't know, it's just the sheer number of people that visit zoos and aquariums every year. There are more people that visit zoos and aquariums every year than there are that attend any kind of professional sporting event. Yay. Yes. So we have a huge platform um, and a wide variety of of different demographics of different people that come to our institution. So it it gives us an opportunity to be in front of a lot of people and kind of have that captive audience. Um, You know, and I think when you're actually living that message and you can show, you can have signage and say, this is what we're doing. You can have animals and say, this is why they're important. People can connect with that. And people can can emotionally, you know, really have that impact that makes them want to do something different. I think it really helps, you know, w- w- it's one thing when someone just tells you to act sustainably, but when you see they're doing it too, it's a lot easier to be want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the other thing is we see a lot of kids and young adults. And, you know, if, if we're going to be successful in creating a more sustainable, um, you know, community and just, you know, a- as a country, being more sustainable we've got to get to these kids and we've got to get them to start understanding the impact of what we do um when they're young because they're not going to make these changes uh, if it's not part of their life early on and so you know this is our opportunity to really speak to these kids as they come out here to events and camps we you know like like most zoos we see a ton of kids uh, over the course of the year we had in our last fiscal year, over 43,000 kids come through our educational program. So the opportunity to teach them not just about the animals, but about sustainability, about the impact that the animals have on the environment, the impact we have on the environment, I think that's crucial. I think that that positions us as institutions that have the ability to actually make a difference long term. And it's going to be a long time till we see whether we're really effective in it. 
but it's so important for us to keep trying and keep trying to put that message out there to them. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing to say because, you know, it becomes ingrained in them and it becomes a natural thing. It's like, you know, they'll start to understand that we don't buy plastic because it's uh, getting in the gut of all the the sea turtles and so on like that. So it, right. if they start to understand why we don't buy plastic, uh, then maybe they won't. And maybe they'll encourage their parents who maybe have been habitually the person that goes in there and buys two cases of those plastic bottles and puts them in the fri- fridge every day, uh, you know, uh, to not do that, you know. It, exactly. Pull on mom's skirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kids can be pretty effective in uh, getting parents to change things. Yeah. That's what I was thinking too. Yeah. Sure. Because, you know, they're going to, uh, I don't know, it just seems like you're right about that. If, it, if we can get to the young people and if they understand uh, what it's all about, uh, they're going to probably push push forward. Because unless they do, they're not going to have an environment that is sustainable. I mean, the world will no. not get better without some help. That's for sure. So thank you, Richard. Yes. For- Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Taking the helm at Central Florida Zoo. Can you tell the listeners where they can learn more about the zoo? Absolutely. So you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and then our website is centralfloridazoo.org. Yeah, and so they can go in there and look at the events so they can go to that beer fest thing that you have (laughs) and so on. Absolutely. All about the party. Yeah, for, for all the dinks out there. <laughs> Thanks so much. We really appreciate you being uh, here and taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Richard. Thank you. All right, so Annie, next week, um, do you know who we're having on next week? Yeah, we're having uh, uh, Eric Toensmeyer, and he is all about edible leaves on trees, which is pretty exciting stuff. Uh, he wrote a, a book about it, and he's, uh, he's starting to get a lot of attention. Uh, and if you think about that, you know, it's we always think about, planting a garden and we and most people think about annual gardens which are a lot of work uh so if you think about instead of changing your mindset about putting things in that are permanent Mm -hmm. that you can harvest all the time you're going to reduce the amount of work that you're doing and you're going to get more product and they're easier to grow. I, I love my chaya trees. Do you? Yeah. I took mine out because it's just it took up too much room in my little area, but yeah. you have a much bigger <laughs> space. Because you have to boil that to get out the cyanide yeah. and so on. So, But, but, just but some, listeners, don't be afraid. You have to boil uh, just dried beans to also get rid of the cyanide. Well, that's true. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's. Uh, I don't mean to frighten you. It's just something that, you know, I just happen <laughs> just, to know. Just a fact, yeah. Right, it is a fact. Do you know where Eric lives? I know he's in, he's oh, in Florida. I couldn't tell you. All right, well, yeah. well we're going to find out next week. Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited to have him on. <laughs> but stay tuned. In the next hour, you will hear WMNF Tampa's Monday Music with Flea. If you want to hear more public interest programming, switch over to WMNF's HD3 channel, The Source, and listen to Tom Hartman Show Live. And I'm Annie Ellis, and, uh, and Kenny's with me, and we're going to remember to be looking for someone to save the world. Look in the mirror. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> You are listening to WMNF Tampa.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Hundreds of scientists are behind a new U.N. warning that the planet is staring down potential environmental disasters if climate goals are not met in the coming decade. NPR's Rebecca